morning, good afternoon, or good evening, and welcome to Inside the Writer's Studio, the podcast where we talk with writers about their lives, their craft, their business, and their latest work. I'm your host, Charlie Lovett, and our podcast is sponsored by Bookmarks. Bookmarks is a literary nonprofit whose programs include the largest annual book festival in the Carolinas. Come visit Bookmarks at our community gathering space and nonprofit independent bookstore in downtown Winston-Salem, North Carolina. Inside the Writer Studio is also proud to be an affiliate of Libro FM, the audiobook platform that supports your local independent bookstore. Stay tuned at the end of the podcast for more information on Libro FM and a special offer. In this episode, I'll be handing the microphone over to Frank Morelli, middle grade writer who you may remember from episode 10 of Inside the Writer Studio. Frank will be interviewing me about my new middle grade book, The Book of the Seven Spells. Frank, take it away. So great to be here with you, Charlie. And uh, really, I just want to say congratulations on your first uh, middle grade book. It's great to have you in the uh, in the fold of middle middle grade literature. Um, so I wanted to start out by asking you about your reasoning for wanting to go back into writing for children. Why, why is that something that, why did that appeal to you? Yeah, so I had written, um, almost by accident, I became a children's playwright. My, my wife, um, got a job at summit school, uh, directing a third grade play. And she came to me and she said, I, I can't find any material for third graders that, that, you know, sort of fits our philosophy of, of drama for children that age, which was, um, that it should be fun, that it shouldn't talk down to the kids, that the roles should be equally split among the children. There shouldn't be one star and somebody else who was a bush. Uh, and so, she said, you're a writer, you know, write me a play. And so I wrote a play and that led to writing plays for, for kids at two different ages at summit for, um, about 11 or 12 years. I think I wrote about 20 plays altogether and just about all of them ended up being published and have been performed in thousands of productions around the world. They've, they've done really well in, you know, in that sort of elementary school, middle school, high school zone, because I think of those very reasons that we, you know, we divided the parts equally. We didn't write down to the kids. We, you know, we made them fun and funny. Uh, and so I had that had that experience of a decade or more of um, not only writing for children, but in many ways collaborating with children. And when you're a playwright, that your actors are are part and parcel of the creation of of the piece that you are that you're writing. And so um, invariably, I would take ideas from the kids and make little changes and watch what they did on stage and see what worked and what didn't work when I was editing for, um, for publication. And so I, I really liked that. I liked being around children. I liked uh, seeing their creativity and their excitement about new material. And so then I started writing novels for, for grownups and uh, it became clear that I couldn't really do that and, and hold down my job as writer in residence at summit at the same time. So I retired from that job after after about 12 years. And, uh, you know, a few years in, I thought, I like this. I like writing novels. All right. I like writing novels that are sort of about old books and things of that sort. But I didn't want to be sort of pigeonholed and do the same thing for the rest of my career. I felt sort of the same way about writing children's plays. I like doing it, but I didn't want to do the same thing forever. Uh, so I went to my agent. I said, look, you know, I, I want to keep writing novels for grownups, but I, I really miss um connecting with with kids through my writing uh and but i don't really i'm not really that interested in ya you know at that point ya was was pretty dark and um you know it was vampires and it was there's lots of of 
sort of romance and unsuccessful romance and YA. And I wasn't particularly interested in that. And my agent said, well, have you tried, have you thought about writing for middle grade? And I said, no, is that? And I didn't know that there was a sort of a genre called middle grade books. You know, I, of course, had read many of such books as a child, but that was before they were labeled that way. Um, so she sent me a box of middle grade books that were, you know, authors who were represented by her agency. And, uh, and I, you know, looked through some of those and I thought, yeah, this is, this is right where I want to be, where we can have adventure and peril and, and, you know, we can deal with some, some tough topics, but, but we can also have a lot of fun and we don't have to worry about, uh, people falling in love or, um, you know, people drinking and smoking cigarettes and all those sorts of things that sort of can come into play when you're writing for a high school or a, or a YA audience. Um, and with the experience I've had, both while I was writing the book, I had the opportunity to share it um, with with young listeners. Um, and, and and some of them became, really became part of the writing process. I mean, they would say, well, wait a minute, a few days ago, you read us a chapter that said this, and now you're telling us something contradictory. And they would, they would catch all these little errors. Uh, and then since since the book was published um, a week or two ago, I've had the opportunity to to visit some schools and and again share it with with young readers. And I, you know, I am I feel vindicated because I really wanted to get back to that point where I could see the look in in kids' eyes where they're excited about something that I'd written. And it's nice to be back at that point, you know, and to have kids really excited about reading the book. I just love what you say about collaborating with children. You know. Both of us come out of the world of education. So, you know, you know, hanging around middle school students, especially for me, has been like the last 20 years of my life. And I, I just remember in, in uh, I, was, I was talking to you about the um, in the beginning of your book, you wrote like kind of an author's letter. And one of the things you talked about was was especially collaborating with various children when you were actually writing the book. Could you tell us a little bit about that experience of collaborating with kind of like your pre-readers? Of yeah, the, the seven spells? Um, it was, you know, it happened again, almost by accident. We were, um, I had written about half of the manuscript and then my wife and I were, were in England and we were going to go on a, a trip with some, some families from our church. The, the kids were singing in a choir at Canterbury Cathedral for a week. Uh, and so a family uh, we've been really good friends with, they, they came to visit us at our cottage in Oxfordshire. And then we were going to drive across England over to, to Canterbury, um, uh, when they after they got done visiting us and so we decided we would take the two girls in the back of our car because um the dad had never driven in england before and we thought you know you don't need two kids in the back of the car while you're trying to do that for the first time so we took the two girls in the back of our car and they were kind of you know they were sisters you know there was some there was some uh rambunctiousness in the back of the car and and my wife said hey do you mind if i just read to them i said what are you going to read to them she goes what about that manuscript you've been working on and keep in mind that i almost never share manuscripts with people until they're done so this was a big ask but i thought okay sure I, i'm okay with that so janice had never didn't know what was in it she hadn't read any of it um she picked it up out of my bag and started reading to the kids and they settled down and then we got to canterbury and they told the other kids that we'd been reading this story and it sort of just developed that every day you know, in the afternoon, they would have choir practice, then they would sing the evening service, and we'd all go to dinner someplace. And then they'd kind of like about 830 at night, they'd sort of assemble in our bedroom for, for story time. And we would read them a chapter or two of, of the Book of the Seven Spells. And so when we got back to the United States, 
they kept hounding me to finish the book. <laughs> and, uh, so in addition to being, you know, good editors, and I said, especially good at sort of catching those little inconsistencies, because when you're building a world, it's really easy to set up a rule and then forget that rule and accidentally break it later on. So um, they were really good at sort of keeping me on track with that. Um, but again, also, I had that opportunity to see the look in their eyes to see what was really working and what maybe wasn't you know when are they getting fidgety and it's not working quite as well so we ended up you know reading the i ended up reading the whole book to them over over a period of a few weeks after we got back and after i finished writing it and then uh you know one thing led to another the book got submitted different places and went into you know my agent and i worked on it i sort of rewrote the whole back half of it um i sort of redefined the characters a lot more specifically especially with respect to their cultural backgrounds um and when covid hit I thought, what can I do to help out families I know that have that have kids who are stuck at home? And, and so we did it again. We had we had story time on Zoom um, every night for two or three weeks. And I would read a couple of chapters of, of the rewritten version of the Book of the Seven Spells. And then a little bit later on, we did the same thing again on Zoom. We read because I was working on book two at that point and I read them book two. So um it's been fun to sort of interact with them in, in a lot of different ways. One of those kids came up to me last night. We had a book launch last night and she said, oh, I'm so glad to have the book. I just keep flashing back to 2020 when you'd read to us over Zoom and I would lie in bed after story time was over, just wondering what was going to happen next. And, you know, it's great to hear that sort of thing from from somebody that you've been reading aloud to. You know, I, I definitely resonate with that. I, I oftentimes like to take unfinished work and just kind of, you know, share it in my classroom without any real context and mm -hmm. not telling them that it's from anything. And I always find that that children are a lot better at giving feedback, at least honest feedback than yeah, even adults yeah. are. Like sometimes adults will tell you what kind of what you want to hear or, or they'll, they'll go around the outskirts of what they're trying to tell you. But kids will never do that. And they will always go right to the point. Um, and it's just refreshing sometimes. So I'm, I'm, I'm glad you had that experience too. Yeah, it, it, it really is. And it, you know, the other thing they'll do, they're very honest in their feedback. And the other thing they'll do is they'll say, what if this happened? What if, what if you did <laughs> yes. that? What if this character did so-and-so? Like they will throw out ideas and some of them are great ideas. You know, um, The audiences I've been talking to lately of school kids, one of the things I asked them is I said, okay, look, you know, and there's seven spells in the book of the seven spells. Um, in book one, we use one spell. In book two, we use four spells. So I need two more. Give me ideas for spells. And they, oh, the kids have fantastic ideas. It's so great to listen to them. It is great to listen to them. They're, they really are great at motivating too, because you know, once you have read even a portion of your story to a child, there is that lingering feeling where it's like, oh, I, I you know, I'm left them hanging. I need to give them more. So I'd always get me me continuing to write. So that's great. Um, one thing I wanted to ask you about is, is about your, your previous experiences writing for adults and even your playwriting experience. Um, you, you know, you have written so many books for adults and with wide acclaim, New York Times bestsellers, um, plays that I've actually seen produced at Summit School since we kind of had common educational backgrounds a little bit. So I was wondering if any of those experiences, whether, you know, playwriting for children, I think probably did translate in, but writing for adults, did any of that translate into the writing for the Book of the Seven Spells? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, the one thing I didn't want to do, as I said about the playwrights, I didn't want to write down to the children. Um, I just wanted to tell a story, a good story, and make the protagonists of that story children. That's really kind of the 
the, the only big difference between this book and and a novels that I've written for adults would be um, it's a little shorter and the protagonists are children instead of grownups. You know, that's other than that, it's the same kind of, you know, you know, the adventures maybe moves along a little faster and things like that. But but I really didn't want to write down to kids. But definitely, you know, the other book I have that was just published was a thriller um, for adults called The Enigma Affair. And I started thinking about, you know, how did I learn to write a thriller? How did I, how did I internalize what a thriller is? And some of it was sure by reading, you know, Frederick Forsyth or, or uh, Ken Follett or, or some of those other writers. But I think a lot of it was watching Alfred Hitchcock movies and listening to Hitchcock, like reading his interviews with Francois Truffaut. And, and, you know, I learned so much about pacing, about building tension um, and all of that came into play in both in the Enigma Fair and in um, the Book of the Seven Spells. One of the things you learn is you alternate these these sort of intense action sequences with um, quieter passages. You know, the, Hitchcock does that in the film. I do that in the book. Um, and as you get closer and closer to the end of the film or the book, those intense action sequences come closer and closer together. Um, that's something, and I didn't think about the fact that I learned that from him, but I definitely did, you know, and that certainly plays out um, in both my most recent adult novel and and in the Book of the Seven Spells. And then as far as the playwriting goes, you know, when you're trying to establish a character on stage and, you know, you have a very small number of lines in which to do that. I mean, I typically, my plays will be divided into three acts because we had three classes of third graders at Summit. And so, and then each kid would have about 12 or 15 lines, right? So that means throughout the whole play, the character is going to have, you know, 35 lines, something like that. And um, that's a very small amount of text in which to establish character. And so I, I kind of got good at, at figuring out ways to, um, you know, very quickly sort of give a hook to a character that the kid could grab a hold of. Now, in a in a fun sort of fairy tale class play, um, the character may not go a whole lot deeper than that hook. In in a novel that's sixty thousand words long, that hook can just be the beginning of the way that we dive into the character. And so, for instance, we find out right at the very beginning that Celia. One of, one of the, uh, there's four protagonists in this book, and so Celia is very passionate about athletic solo athletic endeavors she loves we find her rock climbing at the very beginning of the book about to fall off of a cliff i thought it would be great if i could begin a book with a cliffhanger i always ask kids if they know what a cliffhanger is and they they do and then i say you think i could put one in the first sentence they go no you can't do it in the first sentence it's at the end so i have her literally have her hanging off a cliff in the first sentence um but that's her you know her hook kind of at the beginning is her her athletic ability and um you know, Juliet is sort of the queen of the school. She's a she's a sort of a social butterfly when we first meet her. And um, uh, Sebastian is uh, he's a movie buff. He's like, like everything for him is movies, movies, movies. And Angus always has his nose in a book. Everything for him is books, books, books. And so they all have they each have these the same sort of hooks that I might have given to a character in a play. But then the amount of time that we get to spend with them allows us to go much, much deeper and find out like why is Sebastian fascinated with movies? Well, it's because his family is from South America 
and his parents, that's how they learned how to speak English was, was watching movies. And so, so all of these passions lead to something a lot deeper about the character. And they also all lead to some talent or ability that's going to come to play when these four kids get together on this magical adventure where they have to, even though they're very different from each other and probably wouldn't have liked each other in the real world, if, you know, they have to come together, become friends, become a team to, to solve the problems that are in front of them. You know, I'm glad, I'm glad that you were just talking about your characters because Celia, Juliet, Sebastian, and, and Angus, just incredible uh, character development in, in the Book of the Seven Spells. One of my favorite parts about it is just how these characters are so diverse and how they interact with each other so seamlessly and so authentically. So I'm wondering, like, what do you do before you write the book to, to, to make sure that these characters are, are so vivid in your mind that you're able to create it on the page the way you have? So some of it was before and some of it was during, um, you know, I certainly knew, talk about those, those four passions that the kids had. I, I knew about those. Juliet also is very passionate about music. That's kind of her underlying thing. I, I realized after I had created those four passions, solo athletic endeavor, uh, old books, movies, uh, playing the piano, uh, that I have all those passions. I mean, duh. I, I, yeah, that's called being a lazy writer, right? You, you, but um, and also that all four of those kids use those those passions as a way to kind of escape from from the difficulties of their lives, and they all have sort of different difficulties. So some of the things I knew at the beginning is I knew what they were passionate about. I knew what strengths those passions were going to give them. I knew the things in their lives that they were going to be maybe not running from, but but just at times trying to. To, to move past, like Celia and Angus, their mother passed away fairly recently in an accident. Um, Juliet is worried that her parents might be um, headed towards a divorce. Um, and Sebastian is just sort of dealing with the realities of, of living in an, in an immigrant household. And so most of those, except the one I just mentioned uh, about Sebastian, most of those I knew up front. And so those that gave me sort of a structure to start to build these characters in. The other thing is that having written plays for 12 years, um, you know, when you when you exercise a particular muscle, it gets strong. And my dialogue muscle got pretty strong because I wrote nothing but dialogue for, for 12 years. Um, and kids talk to each other a lot. And these kids talk to each other a lot in this book. And that gave me a really good opportunity to to see how they spark off one another. And what does that tell me about the character? When does when is Juliet sort of condescending to what she considers to be these sort of nerds that she's been forced to hang out with and what is it that makes her come around and understand that they're more like her than they are different from her um when is it that that you know all of these kids sort of have this revelation that these other kids they sort of had a disdain for are are more alike than than they are different and that they can be stronger as a team than they can be as individuals and how's that going to work and that plays off through the things they do together and the way they talk together and then there was a part of it that happened in the process. So after I finished the first draft, the first draft, I did not, I still don't in this book tell you how old the kids are. Um, I really wanted my readers to be able to decide that for themselves. Um, but the other thing is in the first draft, I didn't say anything about their cultural or ethnic heritage or backgrounds, or they were just four kids. There were two boys and two girls. And the boy, one of them, one boy and girl set were brother and sister. And when I went back to rework it, I thought, you know, these kids are already diverse in terms of the way they approach the world. Let's make them diverse in terms of their their cultural background and their heritage 
as well. And let's let's try to find some ways that that might impact the story. And you know, I kind of went the what seems like on the surface of it the opposite way with Angus and Celia. I made them twins um, instead of just brother and sister. But they're just wildly different from each other. And then Juliet, um, her her mother mother is Indian. Her father's from Nigeria, um, and her you know she is is from an immigrant family, although she was born in the United States. And then Sebastian's family is from Peru, uh, and his his parents and his older brother came to the United States shortly before Sebastian was born. And so they both have that kind of um, immigrant experience, but in in very different ways. Uh, I mean, Celia's, uh, Juliet's parents, for instance, grew up in their home countries speaking English, whereas Sebastian's did not. And that really upped the ante. Um, you know, you have scenes where, the, so the bad guy, the villain in this this novel is this guy named um, Otto Bodkin, who is the, the mayor of this town, Headley Helm, where they live. And he's trying to get his hands on the Book of the Seven Spells, this very, very powerful magic book that will allow him to be a very, very powerful and unpleasant uh, person. And the kids are trying to keep them from getting his hands on this. And uh, so, but everybody in Otto Bodkin's family is pretty unpleasant, including the children. And so they're the kids are sort of the the lead bullies in the school. And it's one thing when you have a character who's who's being bullied, who's being teased on the playground, and you just say, you know, oh, Boris Bodkin is teasing Sebastian or is bullying Sebastian. But when Boris Bodkin is saying things to Sebastian like go back to where you came from. You don't belong in this country. Go home. Um, why don't your parents speak English? You know, that's a whole different level. That's, first of all, it's a lot more specific. It can teach us a lot more about character. Um, but it also raises the stakes beyond just childhood bullying because it it echoes things that adults do in the real world as well. And um, so that was that sort of figuring out their their cultural and ethnic backgrounds really helped me to sort of fulfill them as characters. And then it, it allowed them to interact in, in interesting ways because they, they do have to come to, to understand each other um, as, as, as very different people, but they also have to find a way that these very different people really complement each other. And they begin to discover things like one person's strengths can help one of the other people with their weaknesses or with their fears. They all have things that they're they're afraid of um, that they have to confront in in the course of this book. And when they learn that they they can use their strengths to help the others confront their fears, when they learn the value of making a sacrifice to help somebody else out, um, is when they really become not just friends, but um, you know, what Dickens called fellow passengers to the grave, you know, people who who really are empathetic uh, towards one another in spite of their differences. How did you wind up landing on the particular cultural backgrounds that you landed on? Mm -hmm. And then when you were collaborating with the children, did you wind up getting any feedback in that area? So, you know, I, wa I wanted to have some cultural diversity. I wanted to have some some kids who were who were of color. But I didn't want it just to be like, well, there's a black kid and there's a Hispanic kid. You know, that just, I, I didn't want to look like I was just checking off boxes. Um, and, and so I, I thought Peru, that's that's different. You don't hear a lot about, you know, people coming here from Peru. And I, that, that, that just felt a little different. And it also gives this opportunity for for the bully to keep saying, ah, go back to Mexico. And, you know, Sebastian's like dude, I'm not from Mexico. I've never been to Mexico in my life. I've been within a thousand miles of Mexico, you know? Uh, 
And um, and then the same thing with with Juliet. I didn't want it to just be sort of anything that that could feel cookie cutter. I wanted her to have some something really specific. And um, I liked the idea of her her being biracial. I liked the idea that she could pull sort of cultural traditions from her from her parents. She one of the things she does when they get in these sort of tight situations is a lot of times she'll refer to um, just sort of a saying or or a, a, an old folk saying that her her father told her that you know. And so I went and sort of researched you know these Nigerian um, sayings about you know it's things like. Um, when you when you stay together the tiger the the lion stays hungry you know because you're talking about well, should we break up she's like no no keep the lion hungry you know um uh, fishing without a net is just bathing you know those and <laughs> those kind of really got to be um a, a part of the story in a, a way that she could sort of take the wisdom of her ancestors and and bring it to the problems that they were facing so i so i liked having her come from from places that had had their own um sort of historical wisdom that, that had been handed down in kind of a in a in a folk manner you know um that that it was the sort of thing that her dad would just say at the dinner table when things came up that that could be a, a part of the way that she learned how to solve problems um and also you know by making her both um a, a person of color uh from a multiracial family but also sort of the the social queen of the school at the beginning of the story um we we get a sense that there was a there was a journey there like when she showed up in first grade and was the wildly different kid you know she was not going to be the popular kid she had to really work for it um and and we learn about how how she went about that and some of the skills that she acquired trying to do that are are things that she then later on applies to uh, slightly more noble aspirations <laughs> Um, so uh, yeah, the kids that I don't remember specifically talking to my, my child listeners about those decisions when I was making them, but when I came back and read them, the rewritten book, um, that had those characters, you know, sort of more culturally specific, um, they really liked that. They, a, a lot of them, um, felt like it was a more accurate representation of, of, the kids in the schools that they go to and the, and, and the kids that, that surround them in their lives. Um, and, uh, you know, as I said, it, it gave me a, a rich field in which to work because you bring these different traditions in and uh, people have, you know, different ideas about how to solve a problem, different, different, uh, basis of knowledge, uh, different, different talents. Um, and, and it just makes it, a lot more fun to spend time with the four of them writing writing about writing about characters who have like rich cultural backgrounds requires a pretty decent amount of research and yeah you know kind of you know reading reading re reading and rereading and trying to you know get it perfect um but i always feel like it gives you a chance to really grow as a as a, as a human being really and also oh, as yeah. a writer Did, yeah. could, could you talk to us a little bit about the process of trying to gather the information that you needed in order to create the characters that you did sure. and um, how that helped you grow. You know, I had, I, to be honest, sometimes I would just go on Facebook and say, Hey, what would you say if you were from Peru and you were, and you were a native speaker of Spanish, but not just Spanish, but in Peru in that part of South America, and you went into a situation and, and you were going to say, you know, where a kid in America would go, Holy cow. Or, you know, and, 
I, you know, I have friends on Facebook who are from all over the place and they would get, hey, here's what you say, you know, and that, so, so being able to sort of directly consult people, um, was, was really helpful. Um, you know, kind of, this is definitely not a book about current events or anything like that, but just observing in our culture, what was going on with the, with the immigrant experience, with the black experience, with, you know, while I was, while I was working on this book over the years that I worked on this book, we had um, Charlottesville, you know, we had, let's build a wall, let's send people back home. You know, we had a lot of things going on that, that, um, we had Black Lives Matter, you know, we had, I, I, just from, from all of that, I learned so much that's in, in not only in this book, but in the second book too, um, you know, Juliet has a conversation with her dad about how he got pulled over for basically driving while black. And he, he has the conversation with her about how you have to behave around police officers if you're, if you're black, you know? And so, so a lot of that was just paying attention you know, what's going on in the world around me. And then I was also really lucky to have Georgia McBride is my, is my publisher and my editor. Um, and Georgia's black and she was an incredible sensitivity reader for me. Um, you know, told me exactly when I got it right. Um, pointed out to me when I got it wrong and helped, helped me and, and also helped me understand why, it was wrong, you know, not just saying, oh, you can't say this or you should say that, but, but helping me understand, you know, the, the, the background behind that. And, um, you know, every once in a while, it made me really happy. She said something about how I, I can't even remember what the comment was. I said something about Juliet's hair and she said, oh, you got the thing about the hair just right. I said, well, you know, I watched Chris Rock's documentary about black hair and it's like, if you haven't seen it it's, and you're white, it's an amazingly fascinating and eye-opening movie. Um, but those are the kind of things that, you know, just to try to try to be aware of of different cultures, of of the struggles of different groups of people in this country and and uh, how can that become a part of a story without weighing down the story. You know, you don't I didn't want it to be a book about, oh, here's how hard it is to be in this culture and that culture. And I wanted it to be here four kids who are really different and they have a common goal and they come together and oh by the way there's a magic house and an ancient library and a book of spells and they learn tricks from harry houdini and so on and so on and so on um like that's really the 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 fun part of the story but the undergirding it you know is the fact that i wanted them to be to feel like real people with real problems and real backgrounds and and that they bring both their problems and their strengths to the challenges that they face you know, you talked a little bit about all those cool things that show up in the book that are very much fantastical and just really just make the book so magical. And uh, so I wanted to ask you this. What drew you to be a fantasy writer? Why why is that the genre that you feel so feel so strongly about? So, you know, I didn't I've never been a huge reader of fantasy. I definitely read The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings a lot when I was a kid. Um, I read Narnia often when I was a child. Uh and so I definitely had that background of understanding what world building was. And, and you know, I'd read the Harry Potter books. And I like the idea in the Harry Potter books of this is not a different world. This is not the Shire. You know, this is just our world, but magic exists in it. And some people know about that. 
And that's kind of the world of Headley Helm. It's it's our world. Um, it's a fictional town. I don't ever say what country it's in. It's really interesting to me. I've read this book to both uh, to kids in England and in kids in the United States. And kids in the United States think it's set in the U.S. And kids in England think it's set in England. So, you know, um, but uh, but it's, you know, it's essentially our real world, more or less now. Kids have cell phones and kids go to school and so on and so forth. Um, but magic exists. And these four children discover that fact. And most people around them don't know about that. Um, but the bad guy does know about that. And and so um, so I liked sort of that that level of fantasy where it wasn't, you know, completely a new world with different creatures and everything else. It was just you can do some magic. Um, and I think when I started thinking about this book, you know, I was. I don't want to say that I was coming at it from from my brand, but I was coming at it from my own passions that I had included in the books that I write for adults. And um, a big part of that is my my fascination with uh, some people might say unhealthy obsession with um, rare and antiquarian books. I mean, I'm a I'm a collector of books. I have I've been an antiquarian bookseller over the years and um um, you know, just sort of been in that world for all of my adult life. And so I thought, well, how could I, how could that be part of a, of a book that's for middle graders? Um, well, the first thing you think is you think about books like, um, you know, Mr. Limoncello's library and you think about books where libraries are a part of the book. And I'm like, well, of course there has to be a library, but you know, it needs to be a really cool library. So what would be a cool library? Well, one that only they can find would be pretty cool. Um, one that had magical books in it. I like that idea. One that is in itself magical in that it is capable of growing on its own and adding books to itself. Um, and maybe one that only shows up every hundred years. And so the kids just happen to be there at exactly the right time. Um, and we later find out there's a reason for that. So those are all, so, so really it was the idea of the library itself. And then what can be cool about that, that kind of led me to magic, um, to the idea that I wanted to have a library, but I wanted it to be so special to these kids. Um, and and that that led me to magic and eventually to the Book of the Seven Spells itself. Um, and once I had once I had kind of made that decision, uh, then it got to be really fun because you get to make up magic stuff. Uh, and you get to you get to pull in the past. We get to find out about the last person who who owned this library, this magician named Moriarty Mortimer, who was around a hundred years ago. And, and, uh, oh, we get to find out about people who are around even before that. So, um, it gives you a chance to create this whole backstory for the, for the library and, and the kids, you know, literally kind of discover this whole world that they didn't know was there. And, and, you know, it's always fun to be in on a secret. And so these, these four protagonists get to be in on this, on this secret. And nobody else in town knows that they're the they're the heroes. They're they're saving not just this town, but who knows, maybe the whole world. And and I I, I love that idea of um, and it's in, in the Enigma affair too. I love that idea of these hugely important things that that are saving huge numbers of people or turning a, a tide of of evil back the other way, and nobody knows it's going on. It's just four or five people taking care of business and going back home and and then but the reader gets to know about it you know so that there's a certain amount of that in this book as well 
some of my favorite stories have that exact aspect to it. And I think yeah. that might be one of the reasons why people are so addicted to it, to shows like stranger things and sure. Others sure. that where it's just such a small group of people that are just saving the world. Yeah. yeah. So here's a weird question for you. Uh, what, what book in the series might, will we have to wait to, to get to the spell that you would most like to use from the book of the seven spells? So I hope my plan is this will be a trilogy. Um, as I said, I have written book two, but I don't want to work on book three until we know for sure we're going to get book two published. So everybody, you know, write letters to the publisher and tell them you want to see book two. Um, and then because also, you know, you want to get book two edited so you don't put something in book three that contradicts something that's in book two. I actually had to do a little bit of last minute editing on book one so that it stayed consistent with book two. Um but I, in spite of the fact that I'm going around asking kids to tell me what should be the last two spells, I actually know what the last spell is. Um, but honestly, I think the spell that I would want to use the most might be the first spell, the one that they use in this book. Um, but it's either the first spell or the last spell. Yeah. So, um, but it was that, it's been really fun coming up with those. We had we had some a friends a family visiting us. For spring break one year and we were just sitting around the kitchen table and i just said i need spells i need like if you could only have seven magic spells in the whole world what would they be and we had this great brainstorming session and i think a lot of the spells came out of that session and honestly i don't know which ones were my ideas and which ones were somebody else's ideas because we were just writing down on a piece of paper all these ideas for spells but um but yeah i think either, either the first one which which readers will learn about in this book um or the last one which is going to be at the end of the of the third book one of the greatest things about being an author is that one day you can be just making coffee for yourself in the morning and by afternoon you are a full-fledged wizard <laughs> so if you if you could if you could have middle grade readers take one thing from the first book of the book of the seven spells what, what would that be well yeah i mean it's a book about magic and adventure and excitement and that's that's on all on the surface but it's underneath it's a book about friendship um and in, and i guess if i they could take one thing it would be um you know don't assume things about people because the person who's sitting next to you that you might think is completely different from you and you have nothing in common with and you really don't really care for that person they could end up being your best friend they could end up saving your life um they could end up introducing you to the thing that becomes your passion for the rest of your life whether that's playing the cello or doing algebra you know and so the kids all begin with misconceptions about one another and they end um, as incredibly close friends. Uh, and to me, that's the, that's the real beauty of the story here that there's a lot of fun. Um, there's, there's danger and peril and there's parts that feel like, you know, video game excitement kind of things. But underneath that, it's a story about these four very different kids not only learning how to be friends, but learning how when they when they empathize with one another, when they care for one another, they can actually accomplish much, much more than they ever could have done on their own. It's the perfect message and one that I think middle grade readers really, really need to be reminded of no matter when, what age they're living in. Yeah. And I, you know, I just really, I enjoyed the book myself and I really hope that middle grade readers will flock out to the bookstores to pick up copies of the book of the seven spells so that we can make sure we get to that second book and the third book. Yeah, yeah. So one of the things that I love from being on your podcast many years ago was being able to answer the 10 questions, which is 
one of the ways that in, on Inside the Writer Studio, you typically finish uh, out each, each of the episodes. So I'm pretty pumped up that I get a chance to ask the questions now, put you on the spot. Yeah, I'm on the spot here. And, I, you know, I, I answered the questions a, a few weeks ago with reference to um, my novel, The Enigma Affair. So I'm going to try to I haven't really thought about what I'm going to say, but I'm going to try to answer these questions this time as as a middle grade writer. So, with you know with sort of specificity towards, towards this book. So we'll see, we'll see what I end up saying. I don't know. It'll be interesting. Awesome. Awesome. <laughs> Let's see if I can get you sweating a little bit here. Okay. <laughs> so first question is what word do you love to work into your writing? Uh, I think for this book, it has to be magical. That's a good choice. That is a good choice. What word do you hate to encounter in other people's writing? Definitely. Definitely. Uh, I, I just see that word used a lot in a sense that it doesn't add any meaning to the sentence. You know? Yeah, I feel like I use that word a lot in emails. I, I, you're you're going to have me reading over my emails. Well, we all do. I mean, I'm sure I, I'm, I'm sure somebody will go and find it five places in this book now that I've said that. You know? <laughs> oh, that's that's of course. Where's your favorite place to write? Well, I like to write um, in my in my office at home, but but with this book. Um, I'm going to flip that question around a little bit and say, where was my favorite place to, to read it to kids? And because we did it everywhere. And I think one of the most fun is we ended up after choir practice one night in Chick-fil-A reading a chapter of the book of the seven spells. And I don't know what the other people in that restaurant thought was going on, but, uh, <laughs> but we were having a good time. I mean, that sounds like a perfect, perfect storm right there. Reading somebody reading the book of the seven spells to you while you have a, a giant lemonade in front of you. Yeah, I can't exactly you can beat yeah. that. <laughs> Where could you never write? Um, you know, someplace where there's a loud television playing a news broadcast or something. If, if there's, you know, if it's just music or something like that, I can I can usually work. But it, but if there's spoken words behind me, it's I find it hard to concentrate. I've gotten better and better at writing with uh, a bunch of middle graders around yeah. me screaming. <laughs> I would not recommend it. <laughs> to what rule of grammar do you pay least attention? Um, two of them probably, uh, ending sentences with prepositions. I think that's just silly. Uh, there's no reason for that rule to exist really. Uh, and, and sentence fragments. I love a good sentence fragment. Oh, uh, me too. Especially at the end of a paragraph or someplace where you can just sort of use it as a, as a punch. Yeah. There's nothing better than a, than a partial sentence to speed up your writing too. If you're, if you're trying to get a scene to move more quickly and show more action. I love, I love sentence fragments. What are you reading now? Uh, right now I just finished, um, a book by Kate Forsyth called the Crimson Thread because she interviewed me the other day, uh, about the German occupation of Crete during World War II. Absolutely fascinating. And, um, has so much overlap between what she's writing about and what I'm writing about. Um, and then, and so now I, I finished that yesterday afternoon. So I have to go back to the pile and see, see what's on the top of the pile. I think it's probably the new book by Frank Morelli, if I'm not mistaken, because <laughs> we're going to be doing some events together here in a little bit. That's excellent. I heard that's a great book. <laughs> what book would you like to have written? You know, when I look back at, um, at middle grade books that I have loved, I think the book I would like to have written is from the mixed up files of Mrs. Basil E. Frankweiler by E.L. Koningsberg. You know, it's about two kids. It was written when I was a child. I think it came out in the you know late 60s or early 70s about these two kids who run away from home 
uh, to the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York City, um, and then to get caught up in a mystery about a about a statue. But I just I loved that book as a kid, and I loved the the imagination that went into the adult putting herself in in the shoes of the children, uh, normalizing this thing. I mean, obviously, if your kids actually ran away and hid out in the Metropolitan Museum of Art, you'd, you'd be terrified. But <laughs> in, in the world of this book, she makes it just this cool thing that they do. And I always thought that was wonderful. Oh, my goodness. I second that. That book, I was obsessed with that book when I was in middle school. I think it's one of the reasons why, why I, I would say that's one of the reasons why I decided to write for middle grade. It's mm-hmm. definitely an inspiration. What's a book, what's a type of book that you would like to write, but you probably never will? You know, I would love to write a full-on sci-fi um book i mean you know, a book like uh like andy weir's the martian or becky chambers to be taught at fortunate um but i just don't think i don't think i have enough sigh in me um to <laughs> to do the sci-fi but but it, yeah it would be fun i think for me i would i would always wanted to write something like you know i, I remember reading your your history of summit school that you wrote and yeah. just like writing a, like a book of nonfiction about a, a specific place and doing like all the research behind it it sounds really really fun and interesting to me but then at the same time there's not enough fiction involved in it so i don't know how long how much motivation i'd have to finish yeah it. i mean there's <laughs> you know one of the things about nonfiction is it, it kind of takes the pressure off right you know you don't have you don't have to make stuff up yeah, the story's uh, but on the other hand, you don't get to make stuff up. That is exactly right. Cut from the same cloth. All right. This is a great question. What would you like to hear a reader tell you? You know, for this book, I just think I would like to hear kids say, uh, you know, I had a great time. Bring on book two. Um, there's a sentence at the end of this book that when I've read it out loud to kids, I, I get a gasp. And I'm hoping what that gasp means is uh, we want to see what happens next. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think you're going to hear that quite often after people read the book of the seven spells, Charlie. And I, and I just want to say it was it was an absolute blast and a dream to have an have an opportunity to interview you about this book. And I'm really <laughs> hoping that a lot of readers find this book because it is just phenomenally written and just it is fun. And I think the message behind it is just perfect for middle grade readers at this point in time and really Thanks. any point in time. Thanks. I'm so glad you enjoyed it. Thanks once again to middle grade author Frank Morelli, uh, whose latest book is Breaking News, for coming on the podcast to interview me today. You can buy his book and The Book of the Seven Spells wherever books are sold, and you can get signed copies of The Book of the Seven Spells at bookmarksnc.org. Inside the Writer's Studio is sponsored by Bookmarks, a literary nonprofit that runs the largest annual book festival in the Carolinas and operates a community gathering place and nonprofit independent bookstore in downtown Winston-Salem, North Carolina. To find out more about Bookmarks and all its programs, visit www.bookmarksnc.org. Inside the Writer's Studio is proud to be affiliated with Libro FM. Unlike other audiobook platforms, Libro FM supports your local independent bookstore. Whether you buy a single book or, like me, a monthly subscription, You can link your account to your local store or to Bookmarks to support literary community. For a special two-for-one offer, go to Libro.fm and use the discount code WRITERS. If you've enjoyed Inside the Writer's Studio, please consider leaving a rating or review online at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Inside the Writer's Studio posts new episodes on the 1st and 15th of every month. We've got a great lineup for you this fall, so be sure to keep tuning in. Until then, thanks for listening, and may you read with wonder 
and write with passion.